0: This program is supported by PharmaCyclics, an AbV company, and Jensen Biotech, Inc.
1: So he calls me, and I'm sitting at my desk, and he said, it's not good. It's cancer. You should come home. When you go in, I say, first of all, we want to let you know that you have the good leukemia. You know, I looked at the doctor, and I said, so there is a good one, huh? When I saw my mom, that's the first time I ever Googled CLL because I saw my mom, I knew she was dying. I remember we were like just on a hike in our canyon and just like kind of casually told us like we weren't sitting down or anything. We were just like hiking and (laughs) we were kind of shocked, but he was like almost so calm. You know, I mean, I sat her down and
0: reassured her that I loved her very much and would be by her side no matter what.
2: When you hear the word cancer, you freeze at that moment. Everything in time just stops and the world crashes in on you. You've got to pull yourself out of the rubble and you have to say, what's next?
0: If you've ever gotten one of those calls where you've had a loved one tell you their cancer diagnosis, you know that feeling. You remember that moment. Where you were, what was happening, you experience a suspension of time. And then you have to move forward. I'm Alora Nanos, your host for this series. I'm a lawyer, a mom, and the co-host of Vaxon, a podcast series also produced by Offscript Media. In this series, we talk to people on the receiving end of those phone calls, not the patients themselves, but the unsung heroes of healthcare, the ones who are the co-pilots to the patients and take on a multitude of tasks to provide care for their loved ones, who in this case all have chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL. When it comes to caregiving for CLL, the experts in the field are not necessarily professionals. In fact, a recent study from AARP shows that one in five Americans are unpaid family caregivers. So who's taking care of them? We gathered six different people from all over the country for intimate roundtable discussions. And the one thing they had in common is that they're all caregivers for a loved one with chronic lymphocytic leukemia or CLL. Over the next three episodes, we will talk about the initial diagnosis and reactions, navigating insurance and medical costs, the emotional toll and the effects on marriage, partnerships, and family dynamics, and even the loss of a loved one to CLL. Our first two guests are Lisa Ferguson, a communications director from Huntsville, Alabama, and Erin O'Brien, a project manager from Cincinnati, Ohio. So I know that both of you have close family members who currently have chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL. You know, when someone has an illness, there's so much attention focused on the person who's dealing with the illness and getting treatment for that illness. And, you know, cancer always is a family disease. It affects everyone around the person who's sick. And really uproots people's lives. So um, what I'd like to do is start with Lisa. Who is it that has CLL in your life? Who do you live with? What's your profession? Just kind of those basics.
1: My husband, Nathan, has CLL. He was diagnosed uh, a little over five years ago. We have two children. Now they are 15 and 10. Um, We just uh, recently moved to Huntsville, Alabama for my job. I'm in public affairs. I'm the communications director for an an army agency. So we are in the process of discovering a new city and really looking forward to this move in a way that our last move had some negative vibes associated with it because he was diagnosed pretty soon after we we did our last move in 2016. Um, Aaron, tell me about your story.
2: Sure. So my mom was diagnosed with CLL in 2007. Uh, I am the oldest of five kids. There's um, 13 years between me and the youngest. So just by nature of age, I end up always being the caregiver pretty much for everybody, but especially in this instance, because my mom is not married, so she does live alone. And so that's kind of how I got that role with her I myself am by trade a project manager, so uh, I have that skill set of kind of putting all the pieces into place, getting everybody organized, trying to take the emotion out of things, and just saying we've got to do X, Y, and Z. We have to be at place A, B, and C at this time, and and just make it happen.
0: You know, it's so interesting listening to both of you. You both have professional backgrounds that lend themselves exactly to what is needed to be a caregiver for someone really with any kind of illness. When you're dealing with any kind of crisis, being a project manager and a communicator are sort of
1: the two of the biggest skills needed for that. For me, I've really honed my skills in separating um, professional and personal. And so when something like this happened, this crisis for our family, it was hard to recall that you know we will, we will get on the other side of this it was just incredibly devastating to us i would love to hear a little
0: bit more about nathan's diagnosis what was that like when did it happen what was happening in your family at that time
1: nathan had been feeling very run down more tired than usual but you know he was mid 40s he had not been working out a whole lot since he retired from the air force so he kind of figured it was you know somewhat aging He had also started several months before that, like the fall of 2015, he started getting these um, like hives all over his body, like large areas of his body. And so we thought we tried everything. We thought he had like some kind of allergic reaction. We changed foods. He changed um, things he was drinking, all of our laundry soap, all of those things. We changed those and nothing seemed to help. So, when we moved to Kentucky, he got a new doctor and he went in thinking he was going to get an allergy referral. He'd also had like some mild breathing issues, uh, just figured it was, you know, some kind of allergic reaction. And fortunately, the doctor decided, uh, yeah, he got him an allergy referral, but he sent him just because of the breathing thing, he sent him for a CT scan. So, when that came back right after Memorial Day weekend, what it showed were enlarged lymph nodes in his chest and abdomen area, which they knew was not right. Nathan is a nurse, and he knew, medically speaking, that enlarged lymph nodes were not a normal, normal thing. They did that, and his white blood cell count came back. It was like 89,000, um, and we know a normal one is, you know, somewhere between four and 8,000 or something.
0: He knew immediately. He knew that it was cancer immediately? Yes. Did he know anything about CLL? No. And
1: then where, where were you that when you found out? How did, how did that happen? So when we first moved to Kentucky, I worked in downtown Louisville, which is about 45 minutes to an hour away from home. So he calls me and I'm sitting at my desk and he said, it's not good. It's cancer. You should come home. And um, I I was just it was so far from what I expected. never, never did I anticipate that he he was only forty four, and it was only a skin rash. Right, right. you know, And you know, I just it was the most devastating time that I can remember and and Nathan's deployed five times while we've been together. And, you know, those are really hard times, but it has nothing on a cancer diagnosis. I never (laughs) wanted to be, uh, you know, a single parent. So the idea that, you know, because initially we didn't know, like, is he going to die? We didn't know what kind of cancer it was. They immediately got him an appointment that afternoon with a local oncologist. By the time I could drive home and get there, it was time for his appointment.
0: That's hitting the ground running right there. Right? <laughs> yes, it was. Lisa, I'm just going to shift to Erin because I, I, I want to get sort of the baseline of Erin's story. So tell me about your mom and, and, and this journey and her diagnosis and, and what you've been doing with her. What was it like and what happened?
2: Sure. So it was in 2007. I was living in Oklahoma at the time for work, and she had a lump on her neck. And she went to her doctor and they're like, you know, it's just your body fighting off an infection. No big deal. A couple weeks later, it actually was really starting to bother her and hurt her to the point where she was a little scared and she went to the emergency room and the emergency room said, oh, you're getting over something. It's just an infection. It'll go away in a couple of weeks. Don't worry about it. And so she called me and she was telling me the story about what's going on. And I'm like, it's not that's not right. You know, if you're still... You knew it was not right? Well, yeah. If you yourself know, like, you keep going to the doctor because you just feel wrong and the doctor is dismissive of you, you go to another one, same thing. you, You have your own gut feeling and your own gut feeling is something that you can't ignore. So I told her that. I'm like, if you really feel that there's something else going on, don't give up here. We got to keep going. So I called my primary physician in Cincinnati and I said, look, this is what's going on. Can you please look at my mom, just kind of go a little further? And and that's what I wanted. I wanted that extra touch for her and that and just that comforting feeling. And so they did the biopsy, waited a few days and the phone call came. And so I can remember what they told her, it was um, non-Hodgkin's, you know, small B-cell, you know, whatever the full big name of it was. And and I think that makes it a little scarier when the name of what you have is like 500 letters long and you're like, yeah. well, what? <laughs> what is that? So all um, wow. this was going on while she found an oncologist locally. I told my employer, I'm like, you know, I just, I can't be here when this is going on at home. They understood. Um, so I came back home and the first oncologist she saw, we learned real quick that not all cancers are the same. Getting somebody who understands what the cancer is and doesn't just treat it like every other cancer, that. That was it. That was the game changer. That's why she's still alive today. Was being able to find that person who really understood what was going on.
0: You know, Erin, listening to you tell that story, what comes across to me is actually that you are the game changer in this. What I heard you say was that everyone was ignoring this, and if it hadn't been for your advocacy and for your insistence and for your being there to voice your mother's concerns, she might have been in a very different situation you know, and listening to both of you, it's amazing to me. Both of you had, you know, a very close relative get this very frightening diagnosis. And it seems that almost instantaneously, you both kicked into action. And, you know, that it became a project and a goal and something to do as opposed to something to just absorb.
2: Yeah. And you know, the key to that and and I don't know if this is the same for Lisa, but for me, I had to compartmentalize the personal from the, we got to get, we got to get it done sort of thing. If I had let my emotions really kick in of what just happened, what is going to happen, I don't know if I could have continued forward. So I really had to do the separation in my mind of, it's not my mother. It's a person that needs help. So I must help versus holy crap. This is my mother. This is what's about to happen. I don't know if I can do this.
1: So I, Aaron, I have to tell you, I feel like listening to your story. There are so many similarities. We were not happy with the first doctor who was like on the first appointment, wrote him a script to get a port
2: placed. It, yes, um, that's exactly what happened. They're like, hook her up, put the drugs in her. Right, right. But <laughs> and that wasn't the right thing to do. And it wasn't the right drug. No, they wanted to put in no. in the end, we found out.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. The, the second doctor he saw was a blood cancer doctor in Louisville who ran genetic tests so that they could see all the different markers. I, I certainly, I'm no expert on that stuff, but they can tell within the genetic tests if you're going to be successful with a chemotherapy-type drug or if you're going to be more successful with a different kind of drug. And so when I think about if we had just listened to the very first doctor, I I don't know where we would be. Something else, Aaron, that you mentioned about being an advocate, the ability of him to do that research and advocate for himself, you cannot overestimate the importance of that because, you know, you may have people who – can only go to that first doctor? And then
2: what are their outcomes? It's terrifying and sad to think about because people do that. They hear cancer, they go to a doctor who has the name cancer by them, and they think they're good. But it's like, you have to take this in your own hands. You can't just allow one doctor somewhere to be your savior. It just doesn't work like that. And I think that we grow up thinking the doctor. The doctor knows. Listen to the doctor. What do you know? You didn't go to medical school. Listen to the doctor. And that that's just not right. And, and I've learned that now. I wouldn't have known that had it not been for this. I would have said, well, the doctor said this is what we got to do. So this is what we have to do. And I think that's a really interesting point that it's not it's not a knock to doctors at all or the medical
0: no. community as a whole, but rather that it just doesn't work that way. Like It's not that one doctor mm. comes in and fixes everything.
1: And doctors are human, too, You know, we expect them to be infallible, but I mean, they make mistakes just like the rest of us.
0: So everyone responds differently in times of crisis. Caregivers naturally rely on their strengths, but often they've got to fake it till they make it. This can be scary and frustrating, but it's in those spaces that we reluctantly discover that our weaknesses are really just underdeveloped muscles. We're stronger than we think we are. And caregivers often surprise themselves with what they're able to accomplish. And sometimes they gain new perspectives and insights where they never expected. So Lisa, you're now five years in and you've probably found your footing a bit. But in those early days and months, I bet the ground didn't feel so stable. What would you say your main contribution to dealing with this crisis was?
1: so this is this is difficult. Um, okay, so that summer that he was diagnosed is the lowest I have ever seen him i I have never seen him more depressed than that summer. You know, I, I think that there's we have strengths and weaknesses within uh, our relationship, and certainly I had to be strong when he was deployed, and I had to take care of stuff, but it this was just very different, and so it was really. My role, I felt like, was letting our kids know that this was going to be okay, even when I didn't feel that way. And I didn't know that. So, you know, faking it for my kids was what I had to do. I have a handful of times in the 21 years that Nathan and I have been together, have I seen him cry? Telling his mother and telling Ava were two of those times.
0: I can imagine.
1: It was... Devastating for him. Yeah. Telling
0: children difficult news is next level in terms of the emotional impact. Aaron, I you know, you come from this big family, you know, and you're very much the manager, it sounds like, of information and projects for your for your
2: whole family. Did you tell your siblings about your mom's diagnosis? I didn't have the emotion in it that Lisa had because I didn't think goodness, didn't have to tell children or anything like that. You know, my siblings were adults at this time, it was still hard on them. But again, as adults, they take it a little bit differently. And they've got their own support systems even outside of us to deal with. So for me, again, it was, what do I have to do to make this work? And that was really all I focused on. And who is your support system at that time? How, you know,
0: who did you live with? And what, what were you doing? Who is the person that you would talk to about this?
2: myself it was pretty much me you lived alone at the time yeah it was all on me and um again compartmentalizing that's the only that was my survival you know you quickly learn how to do that it's either this or you or you you fall apart and i didn't have that option to fall apart now i think about the future and what's going to happen if eventually this disease does get my mother i think when that happens, that's my moment to fall apart. I don't think I have the luxury right now and I'll cry if I think about it. So I can't think about it too hard, but I don't have that luxury Trying is to acceptable. fall apart. Okay. <laughs> so, so I'm not there yet and I'm not letting myself get there because I just, I can't, I can't. I get what you're saying, that you're in sort of the acute part of a crisis
0: right now. And there may come a day that the crisis is over and that that's your time you know, that, that when that happens and you reach that finish line, um, that's when when you'll allow yourself to fall apart. But yep. CLL is not a crisis that
2: generally lasts, you know, two weeks or two months or two years. It will be decades. Because as you, you may find out, and I don't know, Lisa, if you dealt with this, but the weirdest things would happen to my mom. And, and because CLL has an autoimmune component to it. And so she gets these very weird things. So like, i'm just waiting all the time when i get the phone call i'm waiting for the next oddity so like it's not the cll right now that is like consuming her but all of the weird things that come along with it that just are a byproduct are the things that you got to deal with so so that's what we deal with now and it's like is it a oncologist you see or you know is it something else because who knows what it is that uh that she's getting hit with at the time The thing that I think hurts me the most that I deal with, and this may not be the right topic for today, it's the insurance companies. It's, oh, what it's insur- that's a good topic for today. Let's get on it. Tell me about your insurance woes. It's the what the insurance company is willing to cover and not like, here you go. Here's a drug that will save your life. However, it costs more than your entire year's salary. So what do you want to do? Do you want to live or do you want to die? You pick, you know, that's it, it's been a nightmare. She had one test we found out after the fact, insurance wouldn't cover. It was like a $23,000 test. She paid monthly on this thing for years and years and years. Oh but yet, without that result, we wouldn't have known which type of drug that would work for her.
0: Lisa, has that been your experience too, that the insurance aspect of it all is nightmarish?
1: Erin, my heart just, I, I, it just stopped for, for you and your mom when you said, you said that, you know, the test that was 23,000. So Nathan and I feel very fortunate. Uh, he's retired Air Force, so we have TRICARE Health, which is incredibly inexpensive and incredibly comprehensive. Uh, and, and he will have that for life as well as, as I will.
0: You know, sometimes when I talk with people about healthcare law, or insurance companies, and, you know, anything sort of complex, I often find that it's the people that are in your position, Lisa, who are dealing with a challenge, but realize that for whatever reason, their circumstances make them fortunate to have a certain kind of resource. Those people are in many respects, the best people to understand and advocate for change to a system, because you're not Bogged down by being a victim of the system as much. So it it sort of allows you the perspective to look at it and say, I know that I'm handling this burden with these resources, but I also know
1: that not everyone has access
0: to these same resources.
1: I cannot fathom. I mean, even if he had done chemo with the first doctor, that was going to be like $160,000. What does it say about us as a society that people have to choose? whether to pay a bill and eat or cancer treatment, you know, you could die.
2: Like, Yeah, you're so sick, you can't work. So that was my mom's issue. She wasn't working. Even if you paid, let's say 20%, 20% of $160,000, but you're not working. How do you do that? And I will say this whole thing has completely changed my political opinion on healthcare. Like, it really opened my eyes and really, I politically changed over this. It became a hot button for me.
1: Why can't we as a country prioritize the health and wellness of our people? If we're all healthier, we're we're a better country. We have more people who can contribute to our society through jobs, through volunteering for things. If we have healthier people, how is this Not something that we can prioritize as a country.
0: One of the things that comes through listening to both of you talk about this topic is the need for voices like yours. And, you know, the unfortunate part is you're both caregivers for someone with a serious illness. So I'm sure that, you know, political advocacy is not really on the top of your list of to-do items uh, right now because you're busy, you know, you have your families and you have things to do. Um, if it would work, I would do it. I don't think it would work.
1: If I thought it would work, um, I, I would go with you, Aaron. We could go yeah. and testify to Congress. <laughs> I would do it. I would do it.
0: I think I speak for many when I say it is clear that when you're hearing from the voice of someone from the inside, like the two of you, it is so meaningful and it is not, it's not not—it's not something that can be discounted. So, I mean, keep speaking about it to everyone, not just to people who are in power, but to everyone, because the more people that understand and care, the more important it is. So, I mean, I, I really thank both
2: of you for that because, I mean, that's huge. The whole thing across the country is flawed. I mean, that's just that that's Agreed. just it and and it's an important enough topic that my my thought and my point is it should be looked at people should be looking at this it, it's broken it's broken everywhere you're very right that the
0: that the two main points that are just inarguable are this is important and this is complicated In my opinion, legal, government, and political issues are incredibly personal. These are the matters that were and are of the utmost importance to people. And that's why they become platforms that people get elected on. While we could have done a completely separate episode just on insurance, I wanted to dig deeper and ask them about their support systems and coping mechanisms. Lisa, you mentioned that Nathan has been deployed five times. As part of the military community... Did that experience of having to rally and hold your family together when he was gone, did that help you in any way manage this
1: crisis? Being a military spouse in a military family forces you to be strong in a way that I I think if if your husband is gone for eight months or longer, it forces you to learn new things because, you know, I didn't... You're killing the bugs yourself, aren't you? Um, yes, you kill the bugs. And like, why won't that thing stop beeping? You thought you changed the batteries out of the smoke detector. And, and it's literally at two in the morning, it's going fire, fire, fire. And you're like, what is going on? Anyway, so it, it I think in that sense, it built my resolve in a way that I knew, you know, we would get through this, we have to get through hard times, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And, and we did quickly know, like within, you know, a few weeks, we understood that Nathan was unlikely to die anytime soon from this cancer. So in that sense, we, you know, had a bit of relief. I do feel like it prepared me for doing the hard things in a way that I would not personally have been prepared to do.
0: Aaron, is there anything in your life that stands out as having
2: uniquely prepared you for this or having a unique support system? It would be much different if I was in Lisa's position and this was a spouse for me, it's my mother, which is still close and, and an important part, but it's not my survival. She's not my survival. You know, being married now, I think of my spouse. I'm like, that is my survival. If if I was having to deal with this with a spouse, I don't know if I could compartmentalize it like I am with my mother. I think it's a little bit easier for me to do that. So I, this this was different for me.
0: I'm curious to hear from you, Erin, and and, and also Lisa, what do you do
2: to recharge your batteries? There are a lot of activities that I do that are solo activities. I am a mountain biker. I get on my bike, I put my helmet on, put my sunglasses on, and I ride, and I ride, and I ride, and I ride. So it's, it's the personal activities along with golfing. It's quiet. It's just me. It's the ball. My focus is I've got to get the ball to that hole. How am I going to do that? And I think it's just taking my mind out of it and putting it into just me. Lisa, what do you do? And in, in I'm
0: sure you're inordinate free time. Um.
1: <laughs> um, so, so like Aaron, exercise is is something that I do to get that like sometimes anger. I mean, if I'm being honest. Um, all of that anger, that sadness or whatever, I, I put it into, I'm, I'm an early riser. So I normally get up like 4.30, 4.45 and I get in a good, it's only like 30 minutes of a workout, but I get in a good workout and that kind of like resets my brain for the day. But I'll be honest, um, I think a, your coping mechanisms are part of your recharging. So one of my coping mechanisms is terrible humor. Sarcasm is thick in this house. Like it is it is how we get through. Well, it is hard to find humor in cancer. Like it took a while.
2: <laughs> we found it, <laughs> but it took a while. I, I have to say the humor is, it, it's so true with my mom. The, we had a doctor say, well, she's got five to seven years. And it's funny now, all my siblings, we joke with her and we're like, we didn't financially plan for you to still be alive. Like we weren't (laughs) expecting, like, I don't know what we're supposed to do. We can't really carry you much longer.
0: (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So Lisa, I, I was, I'm curious, how does that work with your kids? Are your kids able to joke about it? Are you worried that if they hear you joke about
1: it, that it somehow is like a little too dark for them? Oh, look, my kids have been exposed to dark humor since birth, like in utero. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's just what we are. Like they give it back in a way, like, like, oh my god, did I, did I, I did this to myself? One of the things that we would, uh, we've done this since the girls were little. At dinner time, when we sit down for dinner, we talk about two good things and one bad thing from our day, and it forces the kids to see that yes, bad things happen. But there are also good things in life. And we choose to focus on more good things than bad things. So like that whole summer, like every bad thing, like we'd go around the table. Well, dad has cancer. Dad has cancer. So finally, I was like, your bad thing cannot be dad has cancer. Like there's other bad stuff. Let's talk about that. (laughs) I I truly believe as a parent that it is my job to prepare my kids to deal with the real world. So I'm not one to insulate my kids. I, I want to, in increments, expose them to the harsh reality of life so that when they're adults and they're on their own, they can make, you know, good decisions and they know what to expect. Life hasn't been this, you know, big bubble wrapped, lovely rainbows and unicorns type of thing. So...
0: Uh, have you prepared them for the the potential for Nathan's condition worsening?
1: No. I admit we haven't because... It. It. He's doing very well in the trial. Um, and so we. I admit we we do not really um, think about what what happens next. We're just appreciating that he's healthy and still in remission. Listening to your stories,
0: it really really feels from the outside like the two of you are experts in caregiving. And, and I know that you probably don't feel like experts, but, but to those of us on the outside, you have walked this road that is so hard and you've put so much of yourselves into it. So I would love to hear from each of you. I'll start with Erin. What are some things that you've learned that you would want to pass
2: on to someone else who now is a caregiver for someone with CLL? Second opinions. Second opinions. Like, you can't go with the first thing that you hear. You can't go with the first doctor. And you may end up back to the first doctor, but you got to give it a chance. And and I tell everybody who ever mentions that they or somebody in their family has cancer, I always tell them, you got to do your research. You have to do your research. When you hear the word cancer and you hear what it is, you're you're stuck. You're frozen. You freeze at that moment. Everything in time just stops and the world crashes in on you. You got to pull yourself out of the rubble and you have to say, what's next? We got to figure this out. We need to keep moving.
1: Well, I, I wholeheartedly second and third on Aaron, what she said, um, go for a second opinion, go for that third opinion. If you feel like that's what you need to do. You know, for me on the emotional side of it, it's finding, finding people you can vent to, um, finding those safe people, those rocks who um, are going to be able to listen and not, not say to you, oh, it's going to be okay, because it, it may not be. And finding the things, whether it's, you know, exercise that works for you or reading a book or um, taking a hike, anything to get you outside of your head for just a little bit. You deserve that. Caregivers deserve that. You need to be strong for, for the patient, but you deserve to be happy and well-rested.
0: Cancer is never going to be a fun road to walk. Uh, the healthcare system is never going to be perfect to navigate. But what would make this process suck
2: a little less for you? I think the big thing is the community. The CLL community is strong It's global. There are people who experienced what you've experienced. You know, I I put so much into what they've done for us and and me and my mom. It's just been phenomenal. I
1: agree that the CLL community has been wonderful. And and honestly, even here listening to Erin's experience with her mom, who had a very different presentation of CLL, you know, it can widely vary. So hearing... Um, what she's experienced and knowing, oh, okay, so if this happens with Nathan, you know, I know that there's someone out there who has experienced this as well. Anybody that can listen and not feel as isolated as I felt when he was diagnosed, I, I, want, I want that for someone. I want them to feel like there's somebody out there for, that knows how they feel. Do,
0: do you folks have anything that you'd like to ask each other now that you've heard each other's stories? I think
1: I would ask Lisa, hey, do you want to be my friend? <laughs> yes. Yes, I would love to. I feel like we should be friends. I'm so glad you guys asked me to do this because now I found another person,
2: Erin. And I think it's finding your people as a caregiver too, like finding Lisa. Yeah. You know, I think that, that really does help. I'm sure no one understands like
0: someone else who is walking that same road. Absolutely. So find your people.
2: Find your people. So
0: like Erin said, our life hack takeaway today is to find your people. Search for them just the way you'd search for the right oncologist for your loved one. That connection can make all the difference in the world. Join us for our next episode as I have a surprisingly vulnerable conversation with two husbands whose wives have CLL. They share their fears and failures and their undeniable determination to support their spouses through this journey. Thanks for listening.
2: That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us your caregiver life hack in your own voice by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. Caregiver Life Hacks is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our host is Alura Nanos. Caregiver Life Hacks is recorded by Ariel Nachman, mixed and edited by Kyle Moore, and written by Joey Brenneman. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.